This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. Welcome to Matt's Blaine. I'm Rich Bradbury. Um, now, last week we talked about Lambda, um, a supposedly sentient chatbot that some parts of the internet seemed to think heralds the coming of the singularity. We're sticking with AI this week, but with its power to alter the way that we work. So, Matt, is this related to the boss bot episode we did back in uh, November? Hey, Richard. I mean, uh, that was, I think, episode 189. Um, it was one of our better ones, but, you know, they're all better ones, which I guess makes it an average one there. I've gone meta again. Um, it's so hard when you're just ex- exceptional. Well, I, I suppose, you know, if we look at exceptional and what it actually means, unusual, not typical, I guess. Just damn weird. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, in the uh, Boss Bot episode, uh, we talked about the increasing use of uh, AI as mm. line managers, especially in the uh, gig economy sector where you log on to an app and the app sends out your tasks, gives you your assignments. Mm. And of course, it's constantly evaluating your performances. And in some instances, because the the partners, the people using uh, the app are not employees of the company, those operators can, as I said, in some instances, be terminated automatically. You know, for example, if they fall below the performance terms of the app or the, Mm -hmm. the various terms and conditions. And we see some of that technology creeping into the regularized employment sector as well, uh, from things like surveillance software on computers, keyloggers, software that analyzes uh, what you're doing from your camera, uh, algorithms that grade productivity and performance. Um, You know, I'm, I'm biased, but I think that episode is still worth a listen if you haven't heard it. So um, we're on new ground today then. Well, yeah, so this is something that we've alluded to in previous shows. We've covered various breakthroughs in work-related AI technology as they've occurred, but it's not something that we've gone into enormous detail about. Uh, This episode actually came about from uh, quite a small story, you know, very just you know, a few paragraphs that I spotted on uh, New Scientist that made me think that now will actually be a a good time to go into this. And Mm -hmm. it's a story about text-to-image generators. I'll explain what they are in a while. But, you know, they're they're pretty cool. They're quirky. It's one of those ideas that, you know, it just seems like one of those fun, funky things. So I thought this would be a good time to look at some of the potential implications of these kind of text-to-image generators and what they say about kind of the wider working environment. Mm. And for those people at home who may not live on the same cloud as you, um, yeah, explain a little bit about what a text-to-image generator is. I mean, it's really straightforward. Um, the, The name says what it is. You type something and the machine makes an image that corresponds to what you've typed. So it's quite a good companion piece to last week. As you said, we were talking about Lambda. 
that is a text-based conversation platform. Um, and we've covered a lot of this kind of natural language programming stuff before, um, mm-hmm. as well as things like, you know, text-to-speech. So if I typed red rose into a text-to-image generator, that's what it would create. Uh, depending on the parameters of the system or the parameters that I request, it might be a photorealistic rose or it could be uh, you know, a line sketch or even an illustration. In uh, episode 202, I think, we discussed an AI-based artist system called IDA, which mm. paints people with purposeful errors so that no two paintings of the same subject will ever be the same. Mm -hmm. And we mentioned during that episode that part of the purpose of that system was to question the role and purpose of artificial intelligence. It's to ask questions like, you know, are we okay with machine-generated art? Should AI be helping to fuel our creative endeavors? And if we accept that, in what way or ways are those interventions going to be acceptable? Um, just a quick question. Uh, what do you think the chances are of you type you actually typing red rose into an image generator, Matt? I mean, that's absolutely slim to zero. Um, <laughs> possibly thinking. something, yeah, more likely, you know, roses growing through a zombie's skull. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, obviously the, the full text for that image is too graphic for me to mention on daytime radio. But, um, you know, I just wanted something simple to use as, as an example. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the system that... Uh, operations like OpenAI and Google are working on are already way beyond those kind of basic operations. Uh, Mm. I think we covered, or it must be a year or two ago, systems that predict what someone will look like just from a a line drawing of them. You know, that that kind of technology, it's great great for police photo fits. Um, You can use it for us, other less democratically pleasant purposes as well. Um, I will go into um, some of those systems in a minute, especially the open AI and the, the Google ones. But we're already at that point where these systems can create composites based on the words that you input, as I just explained. Um, uh, a sunglasses wearing cat playing guitar while skateboarding on a beach. Um, that's one of the actual examples. Or something more realistic like a cougar in the savannah, also one of the actual examples. It actually sounds like you've been stalking some of the images I have on my Facebook as well. Um, But, you know, is that where we're going with this? That, you know, this kind of technology um, could threaten the livelihoods of of graphic designers, illustrators, uh, you know, and folks of that ilk? Yeah, I mean, it could be quite destructive for the creative industries in general. Um, We already have design tools like Canva, which isn't AI-powered, or at least the versions we're using aren't, Mm. Um, these tools have already made inroads into areas of the kind of design agency business. Now, if you don't know what Canva is, it's an online design tool that works like a cross between a lot of Adobe's much more expensive design, illustration, and video editing tools. It provides thousands of templates for everything from social media posts to posters and in-store, you know, sales materials and creative materials. And this has actually made designing marketing materials as easy as drag and drop. Mm. Uh, Now, you know, it's not a big deal for multinational companies. Um, L'Oreal probably isn't going to put together its next campaign on Canva. But 
that really is the glamour end of the industry. The reality is that the the design, the marketing, the advertising industry, they really consist of small agencies and artists working on commissions for small businesses. You know, small businesses, so small budgets. Mm. Tools like Canva are already starting to have an impact at that end of the the kind of advertising industry and market. Just in terms of cost advantage well also in terms of speed you know agencies take Mm. time to turn things around social media is an instant tool um most uh you know medium and small companies won't have someone at a big agency that's dedicated to creating their social media posts in real time Mm -hmm. if if a small business does have an active and engaged community these quick and dirty style tools can allow them to put out communications that match their needs. Uh, you know, for example, if you've got lots of specials left over after the lunchtime rush at your cafe, you can put out a quick Canva post to tell everyone that there's 30% off specials before 5 p.m. Um, right. Or, for example, you know, slow foot traffic through your hardware store on a Tuesday afternoon. How about booking Matt Armitage for a special in-store appearance? <laughs> And that's supposed to increase foot traffic? (laughs) Well, you could book me to do an install for your competitor if you really want to drive up your own business. But, you know, tools like this are are already changing the balance. I I know you've got an image of me standing there holding a hammer. But, you know, it it makes it easier for small businesses to create this high-quality content. Now, AI-powered tools are taking that design process a stage further. Instead of a member of staff having to sit there and make the story post or a a quick TikTok, you can type what you're looking for and the machine creates it for you, hopefully Mm. within, you know, seconds or minutes. Look, I mean, I I know we 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 keep going over and over this this discussion, but do you think a machine can really be creative? Can a machine be creative? Well, for the majority of things we're looking for in this kind of advertising space, creativity actually comes second. You know, as I said, this isn't L'Oreal or Coke or McDonald's trying to maintain a global market. First of all, you have to look at the cost. Mm. What's your small business spending on its creative agency? You could subscribe to a few of these AI tools, one for, say, static images and posts, uh, and another for video. You could even add in a stock image service. And you could still get change out of a hundred US dollars a month. Mm-hmm. And with the AI tools, you're committing less of your own or one of your employees' time to those tasks as well. So you've got a double set of savings. You've got the employee time saving as well as the agency cost saving. But quality surely could still be an issue, right? Of course. I mean, quality is always an issue, but that comes back to you as the business owner, knowing your brand and knowing the brand identity. Mm. Uh, You know, changes are the bane of the creative industry. Um, You know, you've got some stultified designer begrudgingly making the changes that the client requests. Mm. Um, Then you have the delays in completing those tasks that so irritate the, the clients. The machine, on the other hand, it doesn't care. You want a thousand different versions, that's fine. If you want a hundred revisions to the green tone to get it just right, and believe me, I've been there with those revisions, Mm. for the machine, that's 
not a problem. And it's not going to cost you anything but your time. Um, I mean, I've used this as an example before. Um, Joshua Davis, who's an American new media artist amongst many other titles that he has, part of his artistic process at the time I spoke to him was the writing and design of the algorithm that would go on to create his works. That's his creative process. The machine outputs as many variations as he wants, and he does the editing process. He's the one who selects the pieces that become the final work. And that's the part that makes it art. Let's not forget that, you know, the Damien Hursts of the world don't pickle their own sharks or create their own jeweled skulls. They're Mm. conceptual artists. They have craftsmen, and there's a whole ecosystem of support companies that do the actual implementation and create the physical works on their behalf. All right, then. Can we get into a little bit about how these systems work then? Yeah. I mean, two of the the biggest or the most advanced of these text-to-image systems belong to Google and to OpenAI. Now, that's not really a big surprise to anyone. If you go to the page for Imagine, uh, I-M-A-G-E-N, that's the Google system, you'll see some pretty incredible composite imagery. Uh, Google's neural net uses what they call a text-to-image diffusion model, which basically means it has huge data sets that allow it to understand, and I hope you can hear the inverted commas in my voice around the word understand, Um, and they translate those text prompts into images uh, using a diffusion model that creates high-resolution images. Uh, I'll add the links to the research paper, Google's research paper, titled photorealistic text to image diffusion models with deep language understanding, fun read, um, to the uh, show notes. Um, (laughs) OpenAI's DALI 2 is pretty similar, um, combining language understanding with these similar kind of diffusion abilities. Now, uh, I wanted to get into how these systems work now, but I've talked myself into the break as usual, so we will come back to it in a minute. But the key thing about the images is that Um, they are photorealistic. These images look like the kind of highly produced finished product that you would see in TV ads and images, which is, you know, an incredible thought. It's really amazing that these things can be generated from just a couple of lines of text. Okay, um, let's take a break. And um, after the break, what on earth does any of this mean? We'll be right back here on Matt Splain on BFM 89.9. Breathe freely, Malaysians. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. My name is Rich Bradbury, and welcome back to Matt's Plained. Uh, we are back to one of Matt's favorite topics this week, scary AI, uh, and how it's going to destroy our lives. Uh, before the break, Matt promised to outline how text-to-image neural nets actually work. Um, we've talked about the language understanding part in relation to Lambda. Can we talk a little bit about those uh, diffusion models? Yeah, so this is really the kind of 
magic bit um, and you know it, it's kind of suspension of disbelief time in a, in a sense the AI starts off with a bunch of dots and shapes them into the images they're not composites of existing images it rearranges the dots until they resemble the images from the data sets that trained it so um, what does that mean because that's still pretty confusing well if you type eiffel tower it doesn't mm. drop an image of the tower that it's cropped from some existing image it recreates it from scratch uh, using uh. all the images in its data set as the basis for that. So that allows you to create it from pretty much any perspective you want as well. And the same goes for all the details in the image that accompany it, say the sky, um, the shops, the people. So you could put the Eiffel Tower in New York's Times Square and make the sky pink and turn the sun into a rose or you know, even a zombie. Um, mm. you, you can also use it to enhance or alter existing images. One of the DALI 2 uh, examples, uh, I should be saying it more like DALI because the, uh, they've obviously made it to sound like DALI. DALI 2 mm. examples replaces a dog sitting on a chair with a cat. Uh, and it does it seamlessly, at least in the examples uh, that we're allowed to see. So the, the, the cat replaces the dog in the correct scale in the correct orientation, as though that was the original image. Okay, so th so this drums up a bunch of questions. You know, um, is there a concern then with these systems about uh, potential for things like deep fakes? You know, we've been talking about that a lot. Surely it's got to be. Well, yeah, there are lots of concerns. Although that's not really the focus of today's show. Um, mm. You know, I, I want to talk more about the potential impact of the technologies on jobs and the way we work. So. If, mm. You know, as thus far, there haven't been any public demos of the technologies. And that's something that New Scientist uh, notes in its article. Uh, and that could be partly because of the potential to create um, deep fakes uh, or perhaps even sort of, you know, more harmful results. And again, we come back to the biases that can be built into systems from the data that they're trained with. Yeah. We don't know if these systems have inherent biases baked in, racism, sexism, you know, so it may be that the systems need more development and filtering before they can be released to the public, which... Mm. To be fair, is the same with Lambda, which we discussed last week. Mm -hmm. These are developmental tools. They're not, at this point, designed to be public-facing ones. Is that why a lot of the images that you mentioned, uh, and, and even on, on the website that I had a quick look at, have got cute or, or, or cuddly animals in them? Uh, very much so, I think. You know, the right. tone is definitely pretty lighthearted, um, especially on the Imagine site. Uh, yeah. I mentioned, you know, the skateboarding beach cat earlier. Now, you can take that in a number of ways, that this is a fun tool that can put together your wild flights of fancy. I mean, these are some of the genuine examples. I'm sure you saw some of them. There's a, a dragon fruit wearing a karate belt in the snow. Mm -hmm. um, there's a marble statue of a koala playing a DJ set. That's one of my favorites. Um, there's a cobra made out of sweet corn with a farm in the background. I don't understand that one at all. Um, and then there's a, a, a what looks to be, you know, entirely real, a blue jay standing on a basket of 
different colored macaroons. So you can look at these cute interpretations as a way of normalizing something that perhaps you might find a bit scary. Right. Which brings us to that wider point then, the implication for industries and the people working in them. Yeah. So if we look at the creative industries first, um, but it isn't limited to them, as I'll, I'll go on to show later, it is a lot broader. It's, as I said, those wider potential implications of using the tools. Um, and let's say these tools are, are kind of released, that they're too expensive for your average small business to invest in, which is often the way with, you know, big technology releases. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of unlikely given the cost of some of the uh, tools already on the market, which I will give a, a brief run through of um, in a minute. You think they could be used as a cost saving measure for um, existing creative agencies? Yes. Thank you uh, for helping me with that. To very poor segue. Um, no, that would be one purpose. You know, instead of having a dozen illustrators and uh, graphic designers on staff, mm. you can outsource all of that creative grunt to a neural net in the cloud and your existing creative directors or senior designers make the executive decisions about what the client sees. Mm -hmm. So imagine how much faster the, that process would be. The account handling team gets back from a meeting with the client the brief is literally fed to the neural net, which starts to churn out examples of what the client is looking for. So the creative director is effectively acting as an editor, as I mentioned Joshua Davis doing earlier. Mm, mm -mm. The director is the one tweaking the version, uh, tweaking the text that is input to get something that is suitable to send back to the client. So a process that typically takes days or sometimes even weeks could now be turned around in just a few hours. So there's a combination of cost saving and competitive advantage. Exactly. I mean, I used those examples of big marquee campaign ads. But as mm. I said, the reality of the business is that most of the creative work is actually very transient. It's for things like Insta stories. It's for things like tweets, mm. things that come and go in 24 hours. So companies understandably aren't willing to spend huge amounts of money on them. Right. They're ephemeral. So the budgets dedicated to them reflect that as well. Mm -hmm. So the advertising business, the design uh, sector has become about, you know, uh, it's become about scale and volume and razor thin margins. And that's the way it's been sort of heading for years. Mm. You know, I, I've got friends who used to do nothing for weeks except resize and reformat images for airline ads to fit <laughs> dozens of different banner ad sizes. But with, you know, with clients increasingly pushing for much shorter turnaround times, um, because their their own marketing is now subject to those same fast moving consumer and cultural considerations, any technology that enables you to cut your headcount and increase your speed and efficiency, I mean, it just sounds too good to be true. And I'm guessing this isn't just limited to designers and illustrators now. No, I mean, it's across the kind of creative industries. So here's the audio part of a video clip that I created. Hi, Richard. Hi, BFM listeners. This is a machine-powered edit. It was created from nothing but the text that you're listening to now. To see the video version, follow Culture Pop socials. 
Now, I'm not sure if we can get this played on BFM socials. Maybe we can. I'll have to get Richard to ask the uh, higher powers that live mm. in BFM's social media bunker. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you can always follow Culture Pop's uh, social media feeds to see the clip. Now, I created the video that goes with uh, that text, uh, that, that audio rather, from just a few lines of text. The AI turned it into a video with a realistic avatar. Again, not uh, an animation of a, a, a human, but an AI creation. It added a moving background and some, you know, very quiet background music. Mm. And it's the kind of thing that you could use for infomercials, tutorials, presentations. And this isn't an experimental product. This is a commercially available cloud product that costs around $30 a month. Um, you can go to synesthesia.io and uh, play around with it and create your own demo video. So we're docking off video creators as well now. Yeah, we've used, uh, well, we've both used Descript to generate audio versions of our own voices, and we've used them on the show. Uh, mm. Synesthesia does something similar, but um, it uses these uh, AI avatars. And I think it works in something like 40 different languages as well. So um, mm. there are... There are tools as well that will automatically um, interpolate footage for you. They'll boost and re-render the quality of grainy or badly shot footage. There are tools that will let you automatically delete something and replace it with something else in uh, footage. You know, it could be that ex-boyfriend who ruined all your vacation images, or it could be <laughs> a product image. You know, you want to use an old background, but substitute in a new product or packaging without having to reshoot the entire video. Um, this one is really cool. Um, this is a website called playphrase.me. Uh, you can type a phrase and it will create a customizable montage of clips from movies that use that word or phrase. So, you know, you can say bazooka and you'll get, you know, a, a hundred movies that use the phrase bazooka, the, the word bazooka anyway. Um, mm. Copyright means that I couldn't generate one for the show, but do go and check it out. Hours of fun there. Um, and it's, you know, it's the same across the video industry, color correction, fine tuning edits, audio normalization, uh, audio normalization, rather, all of that kind of thing. Mm. But beyond the narrow confines of the creative industries? Well, I was going to quickly mention copywriting too. Um, most of the AI tools that I've tried so far for that have been a little bit lackluster. You know, it's the same issue as with chatbots. They get very samey and they veer off topic very quickly. Um, but other tools, assistive tools like Grammarly, are absolutely amazing. Um, mm. My own copy is generally pretty clean, but I'll still whack it into the premium version of Grammarly because it gives it an edge. It shows mm. me words that I repeat too many times. It shows me linguistic tricks I use too often. Um, it reminds me that I over-rely on the passive voice, or <laughs> it shows me when sentences lack definition. You know, it's something that even seasons seasoned pros can benefit from. Um, but going back to your question, does uh, architecture count as outside the creative industries? Um, I'll let you have it, yeah. Okay, so AI is increasingly being used across the architecture profession. Uh, generative design tools and machine learning can help architects and urban planners to create cities and developments that meet 
contemporary needs. Uh, you can model the flow of traffic, the flow of people, and highlight potential flaws or congestion points. You can use big data to analyze satellite imagery. Um, that's becoming an increasingly useful way for urban planners in developing countries to map urban sprawl and shanties, mm. and also mm -hmm. to plan how to reach them with basic services and amenities. So there are all these new ways to build quality of life measurements into that initial design and to build uh, more adaptivity into it as well. For example, uh, equipping those designs with systems and sensors that allow you to monitor how they're being used in real time and having flexible spaces that enable you to change uh, those, those neighborhood spaces to accommodate the use cases that develop as as people, you know, wander around them. Mm. But Matt, th those are still, you know, essentially assistive tools. Yeah, um, but some of the generative design tools are increasingly becoming standalone. Um, mm. uh, a startup called HiArc claims to enable consumers to design their own homes using their proprietary AI and bypass the architect completely. Uh, apparently, the software can even produce production-ready blueprints that you can just you know, pass on to your builder. Um, and it'll even pull in data from satellite imagery so that the home it creates is specific to the plots and the surveyed land data uh, that they're going to be built on. So the hope is to make it easier for people to get the house they want rather than, you know, a, a cookie cutter block at a price that they can afford. So these tools are working hand in hand with the kind of assistive or replacement technologies we're seeing in stuff like uh, law, accountancy, um, medicine, and the other professions. Yeah. And this brings me to that broader point. You know, it's great that we have these tools to take away the drudgery to help small businesses and ordinary people take advantage of cutting edge services or production methods. All of those things are great. Uh, I'm not even going to talk about the job losses part because I want to concentrate more on the potential skills gap that I can see this creating. Mm. If we go back to the uh, design tools or equally the architecture tools, those models work because there is still a seasoned, experienced professional, uh, a senior designer, a creative director, or a master architect who mm. is still in that process. Right, and they're the ones still signing off on the content created by the machines. Exactly. You know, they're the ones doing that tweaking. They're the ones doing that substitution. They're the ones asking the machine for new versions and alternatives. Mm. And those people exist because of the current legacy system where, you know, you qualify, you get a job and you work your way up in the profession. So this technology could disrupt that entire system. The machines mm -hmm. are now doing those entry-level tasks. Now, that works fine for the time being because there are already those other generations that have started to work their way up. But where is that next generation of senior designers, architects, accountants, lawyers going to come from? Mm -hmm. Without that system, without those entry-level positions, without that hierarchy, how can somebody even enter the industry to gain the experience they need to make those decisions later on? Mm. More to the point, who's going to take on the cost and time of training to be a lawyer or an architect? I mean, that's seven years when there are so few or almost no entry-level positions. 
Please don't say the answer's more machines. Well, I don't actually have an answer, and I don't think anyone does yet. Um, Sure, um, more and better machines, that's one solution, but that comes with the risk that we become that, you know, science fiction society where machines do all the actual work. Mm. Or rather, the machines do all the work that it's possible for them to do, and we get left with the tasks of feeding them doing the work that they can't so that's likely to be increasingly those menial tasks um so it becomes about us trying to cope with the flaws of the machines rather than what the original intention was was the machines coming to assist us to deal with our Mm -hmm. flaws Mm -hmm. and i think that's one of the the enormous problems with our current ad hoc approach to artificial intelligence deciding what it should be rather than just accepting what it is. I think that's a really nice way to frame it. You know, it's that that tool to give people the power of architecture without needing an actual architect. That's mm. great. But is that desire, is that need greater than our need for actual human architects? The mm. same with urban planners. Machines may be more efficient to a point. They may be able to work through more variables, but they don't necessarily, well, not necessarily, they don't understand humanity. And Mm -hmm. that is always going to limit their ability to design for people. Mm. Uh, And these aren't conversations that we're having, at least not in kind of the mainstream. What seems to happen or what does tend to happen is that the technology comes and after a while, we accept it. We're not looking at that bigger, that more long-term picture and saying, okay, this is the direction the technology is taking us. And asking if this is the direction we want to be going in. Well, we have to determine the role that we want AI to occupy in the design and implementation of our future. We have to carve out the roles and positions that we feel we should keep for ourselves. Mm -hmm. I know it sounds selfish, but it comes down to some basic fundamentals. We have essentially capitalist systems sort of underpinning the the global economy. Now, you can argue till you're red in the face about the, the pros and cons of that. But essentially, you know, We work, we earn, we buy stuff. Mm -hmm. In a future where machines do all the work, well, we don't earn. So how do we buy stuff? And the support structures of that entire system are then put in jeopardy. They potentially could collapse. Like I said, I don't have an answer. Maybe that is a future that you want to pursue. But Mm. irrespective of where you stand on the discussion, these are conversations that we should be having now before it's too late, before the technology comes in and we simply accept it for what it is and find out that our future is written in code. Wow, happy ending again there, Matt. Thank you. I I, I always aim for the uplift. (laughs) Now, um, if you really want to, uh, you can find Matt on Instagram and on Twitter at CultureMatt or you can subscribe to the Culture Pop newsletter on Substack for more information about these shows and if you did miss this particular show go back and download the podcast and have a listen back to it uh we recommend you listen back via the bfm app it's available on the apple app store or google play this has been matt splained here on bfm 89.9 the business station
Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.